Hello, Rebecca. Hi, John. From the Recount and iHeartRadio, it's the News Items Podcast. Bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. It's Wednesday, May 5th. Rebecca, what stands out to you today? Well, Facebook's oversight board has upheld the company's ban on former President Trump. We can only imagine what the scene is like at Mar-a-Lago today after that quasi-Supreme Court decision. I also want to talk about inflation fears and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's backpedaling. I think the News Items podcast is going to need a Supreme Court someday. (laughs) The Oversight Board. Yeah, yeah. All right. But we'll also be talking about strategic ambiguity regarding Taiwan. And we have two more examples of the right's growing strength in Europe, one from Spain and the other from France. All right, let's get to it. As usual, we'll start with our science and tech headlines. First, China built 1 million electric cars last year, but it will be churning out 8 million a year by 2028, according to an estimate by the data firm LMC Automotive. That would be more than North America and Europe's combined output. Startups are a big part of this push, some with international investment. As the New York Times reported today, they're betting that customers all around the world will be willing to shell out for electric cars from some pretty unknown brand names like Seeker, Hung Che, and Xpeng. John, do you think that's an easy sell? I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Building a Chinese brand is probably a good thing uh, in China. But whether that translates into sales uh, throughout Asia and the U.S., I don't know. I agree. I think the uh, U.S. and European automakers have been extremely, extremely proactive on the electric vehicle front. It's not like they're just sitting around waiting to be outclassed by Chinese car manufacturers. On to the next thing. There's new research out of the University of Michigan about how our brains become consciously aware of some sensory information. Researchers identified a key area of the brain, the anterior insular cortex, as a type of gateway. When study participants were asked to imagine playing tennis, for instance, the cortex played a role in activating parts of the brain associated with movement. When participants were given an anesthetic, the cortex was again involved in deactivating other parts of the brain. John, why is this significant? Well, you and I already know all this, so I think we can move on. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. It reminds me, though, of that exercise you often hear, you know, about uh, elite athletes, where you visualize yourself, like you visualize yourself hitting the, yes, you know, hitting right. the home run. You visualize yourself, yeah. yeah, or you know, clearing the hurdle or whatever. You know, that it sort of it speaks to that dynamic. It's, uh, I, I mean, it's all part of one of the themes of news items, which is mm-hmm. that the mapping of the human brain is proceeding at a sort of breakneck pace. Yeah. And, you know, it's possible we'll have a full map of the human brain by 2030, which would just be astonishing. Indeed. All right, let's go to the news items. Facebook's Oversight Board, which is a panel composed of outside journalists, activists, and lawyers appointed by Facebook itself, upheld the company's ban of former President Donald Trump. The board said Facebook was right to suspend Trump's account after he used it as a megaphone to encourage rioters at the Capitol on January 6th. But it added that indefinite suspension of a user wasn't appropriate, and it gave Facebook six months to respond. The board's rules are binding. John, if inciting a riot isn't enough to merit a lifetime ban, what does a user have to do to get tossed from Facebook? Or alternatively, what does a user have to do to get on Facebook's oversight board? (laughs) I mean, there are a lot of pieces to this. One is Facebook. Facebook is a private company, and I happen to believe that he did fan the flames of that riot. Mm -hmm. But 
This business of Facebook controlling speech is really troubling yeah. um, because they're, you know, it's a corporate surveillance state. That's what Facebook yeah. is. And yeah. the notion that they control speech is troubling to say the least. Yeah. And I mean, for those who, who disagree with the implied politics of Facebook's move in this instance, other social media outlets, maybe not as big as Facebook at present, can play that game too. So if we're going to move into the realm where tech companies that are well capitalized start their own individual, like, you know, like the FIFA court or whatever that happens when soccer hooligans start a riot in a soccer stadium and they're tried independently by, you know, by the league, you know, I mean, this is, I mean, you can follow this thought experiment to a very ominous point. The notion of Facebook having a Supreme Court Mm -hmm. that will rule on these matters, which is basically the point of that is so that Facebook can say, oh, no, it wasn't us. It was the Supreme Court. Right, right. I don't know. It's preposterously grandiose. It is uh, preposterously (laughs) grandiose. You know, the Times had an explainer today about the oversight board. uh Uh-oh. It's a board of 20 people composed of academics and political leaders handpicked by Facebook. They are based in London. Mark Zuckerberg himself, quote, conceived the idea of having an independent body that acted like a Supreme Court, end quote, back in 2018. Members of this board are paid by Facebook through a $130 million trust. And in a majority of instances, they have overturned prior Facebook decisions. You know, it will blow up as an issue today. I'm sure sure it already has. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure that the Republican leadership in both houses of Congress and throughout sort of the, you know, the conservative slash right wing networks that are out there, I'm sure they'll be screaming bloody murder about this decision by the Supreme Court. When I heard about this, you know, that that the Supreme Court of Facebook had issued this ruling, it honestly reminded me of that time that Geraldo Rivera had the mock trial of JonBenet Ramsey's parents on his television show. It was like some kind of cathartic, sideshow, quasi-judicial <laughs> event that was designed to sort of like take some of the edge off an inflammatory public issue. Right. You know, there are constitutional issues. There are free speech issues. There are issues of inciting a riot. There are, you know, there's ample legal precedent for the way those cases are handled, none of which have to do with handpicked members of Facebook's judicial board. I mean, it does turn over all of the all of the arguments about Facebook's role, especially in our politics and That'll all get stirred up big time today and and going forward. The question is, will that cause Facebook problems, antitrust issues, or yeah. you know, does it add momentum to the stated goal of breaking up Facebook or breaking up big tech? And the answer is probably it does a little bit, mm-hmm. but I would bet on big tech in that fight. Ah, oh, alas. Alas. <laughs> all right. Let's go to Madrid. So we've got more evidence that the right is ascendant in Europe. On Tuesday, the Conservative People's Party won a plurality in Madrid's regional elections, and they're likely to form a coalition with the far-right Vox Party. And over in France, the right-wing populist news channel CNews overtook BFM-TV as the most popular 24-hour news channel for the first time ever. Its star pundit, Eric Zemmour, has been convicted for hate speech three times. John, what explains this ongoing rightward shift in Europe? Isabel Diaz Ayuso, head of the Madrid region, Mm -hmm. she set it up as freedom versus communism. And 
you know, she was noted because Spain shut down uh, during the pandemic, and mm-hmm. she did not uh, shut down the Madrid reason. She left bars and restaurants open and open defiance of the national government. So she ran on that mm-hmm. under the banner of freedom, and they doubled the number of seats. Mm-hmm. The very ultra-right-wing party, Vox, won 13 seats. So if you put them together with the PP, you have a working majority. So Madrid Regional will be run by that coalition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a question of, is this all part of a bigger movement to the right in Europe? And Mm -hmm. given immigration, given the dislocation of the plague, given the enormous economic difficulties that Europe is having, it may well be that the right's ascendance will continue. In France, the news channel CNews uh, has become the most popular 24-hour news channel for the first time ever, led by a pundit that has been convicted of hate speech on three prior occasions. What's going on there, John? You know, there's a huge audience for a French Fox News, uh, a right-wing network that in prime time, tells a large audience what they want to hear. And lo and behold, what I like to call Le Fox News Mm. has emerged as the ratings winner in prime time. It's exactly Rupert's formula, exactly, uh, which is you load up prime time with right-wing talk, and Le Fox News has the most popular uh, prime time lineup, so they're doing very well. And this is formulaic. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. This is like a, there's a how-to guide yeah. uh, basically that's available for, you know, uh, a buck 50 at 1211 6th Avenue. 1211-6th <laughs> Avenue, people. Yeah. So elites are bad. I mean, mm-hmm. we know that, right? They're really bad. And they're working against you, the people. Mm-hmm. to do whatever, you know, bring Muslims into the country and take away your jobs and try to keep you out of restaurants and on and on and on and on. There's nothing original about it. So, yes, the right is rising all over Europe. There's no doubt about that. Okay, let's move on to the next news item. That's it. For decades, the U.S. has maintained so-called strategic ambiguity over Taiwan, never declaring whether or not we will come to the island's defense if China attacks. But as China has stepped up its incursions into Taiwan's airspace recently, there have been growing calls for strategic clarity. In March, as he was retiring as the head of U.S. forces in the Indo-Pacific, Philip Davidson said that, quote, these things, end quote, meaning strategic ambiguity, should be reconsidered routinely. On Tuesday, top White House advisor Kurt Campbell seemed to shoot that down, saying strategic clarity carries significant downsides. The Biden administration came in and... Prior to the Biden administration, you know, kind of in the last six months of the Trump administration and now in the first three months of the Biden administration, the Chinese have been basically practicing an invasion of Taiwan. And so this has led, among others, Richard Haas to argue that strategic certainty was the way to go. Really? Of course, the Chinese hear Mr. Campbell say, hmm strategic certainty, not so much. And the question is, does that embolden them or does that make them think he's sort of double secretly, you know, misleading them? I believe in the piece that you linked to in news items today, 
The director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, has said that pursuing a policy of strategic clarity would, quote unquote, solidify Chinese perceptions that the U.S. is hell-bent on preventing the rise of China. So that strategic ambiguity does serve a purpose. Granted, that policy dates from a time when China did not have the military capabilities that it presumably has at present. And, you know, I mean, another point to make on this is that strategic ambiguity serves a couple of purposes. One is it was meant to deter China from behaving belligerently Mm-hmm. toward Taiwan, but it was also designed to discourage Taiwan from declaring independence, right? I mean, so in, in that sense, it works to the advantage of China also, right? It was the fudge, right? Yeah. And it worked, you know, it worked for a good long time. And now, maybe not so much. John, where do you come down on strategic clarity versus strategic ambiguity? Because the stakes are very high. It would seem, I mean, the wrong move is going to be a really wrong move. But is there a right move? I think ambiguity is probably right. And I also think that strategic ambiguity is a much easier sell to the larger Asian community since the Biden administration and indeed any administration going forward uh, is going to have to stitch together a really complicated but expansive alliance of Asian nations to be on the American side of things at least more than half of the time. You know, strategic ambiguity is probably an easier sell in all those world capitals than, you know, we're going to go to war if China does anything. That'll make other Asian nations very nervous, I would think. All right, John, that's a very, that's a wise and circumspect view on a highly complex issue. So we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. And we're back. Rebecca, let's talk about one of our favorite storylines for our last news item today, the terrifying or overblown, depending on your perspective, specter of inflation. On Tuesday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said the Fed might need to raise interest rates to keep the economy from overheating, and then almost immediately walked it back. A top White House economic aide also demurred yesterday when he was asked if the Biden administration plans to reappoint Fed Chairman Jerome Powell for another term. So, Rebecca, what do we make of this? Okay, so Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, speaking at an event sponsored by The Atlantic magazine, and she indicated that the Federal Reserve may need to raise interest rates. This was a provocative statement for a couple of reasons. First, it seems to contradict what Fed Chair Jay Powell has been saying for the past several months, which is that there are no plans to raise rates until at least 2023. And I think a majority of Fed members agree with that. Secondly, it was provocative because it's perhaps not normal for a Treasury secretary to make that kind of a statement about monetary policy. Thirdly, Janet Yellen was Fed Reserve chairman, so she knows exactly the kind of impact that those sorts of remarks can have. Look, there's inflationary risk to massive stimulus. That's not a secret. That's not a secret. And so, you know, it's an issue of whether you think the Federal Reserve will be able to act quickly enough to prevent a runaway inflationary scenario, which... You know, Jay Powell would be the first to tell you, probably, as he's said it on the record many times, has not materialized beyond a quote unquote transitory spike in consumer prices in recent decades. What do you think, John? Well, what made this perhaps a bigger story than it might otherwise have been is that Jared Bernstein, who's a member of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, said at a Politico event that he couldn't say whether Jay Powell would be reappointed to a second term. 
that there was a, quote, process, end quote, which hadn't even started yet, so he couldn't say yes or no on a Powell reappointment. That, combined with Yellen saying what she said, caused this kerfuffle about the White House messaging being confused. And indeed, you would think the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors would talk about the reappointment of Jay Powell, not a member of the Council of Economic Advisors. So I think Mr. Bernstein probably stepped a little bit out of his range and caused today's headlines. So, I mean, this brings us back to the same question. Do you think that inflation will increase? I think everyone says yes. And then they, you know, this is followed by so. There's been massive stimulus, but I think there's also an acknowledgement that the kind of ultra easy monetary policy that major central banks have been instituting it as well as unconventional monetary policy since 2008 has left a lot of people out in the cold. And the same people who were left in the cold by ultra-easy monetary policy are left in the cold by the economic dislocations of COVID. I think the world would like to avoid a scenario where you have, just to quote Mohammed El Arian, one of my favorite economic thinkers, artificially suppressed financial volatility and a world of universal 1%, which is to say 1% inflation, 1% growth, and 1% of the population reaping all of the benefits of very easy monetary policy. I mean, that's, I think, that's it. I, don't, I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, there's reflation going on. Is there runaway or rampant inflation? I mean, when you see, I mean, there are a number of inflationary indicators that are pointing higher. Consumer prices were higher by 2.6% for the year for the year over year measurement as of the end of March, but that's going to be a distorted figure because you saw consumer prices collapse in month one of the lockdowns compared with a 1.7% rise in February before any lockdowns had been instituted whatsoever. Um, you know, Janet Yellen has said that any near-term increase in inflation will be temporary. I don't think that's a dramatic departure from Jay Powell's comments that any near-term spike in inflation will be transitory. I think you can very innocently say that if there is an alarming rise in inflationary indicators, that the Fed will act accordingly, such as by raising interest rates. Right. Look, I think Jay Powell's focus on maximum employment is laudable. I mean, KKR was out with research today pointing out that 44% of unemployed workers in the United States right now have been unemployed for 27 weeks or more. Right. I mean, that is speaking to a real danger of people becoming cut off from the workforce. And if you yeah. have, as your stated mandate, as the Fed does, maximum employment, that's a real problem. It's all well and good to say a ton of stimulus is potentially inflationary or is inflationary, or there are inflation risks associated with all this stimulus. But at the same token, political authorities, political entities have dropped the ball on labor market dislocation for a long time. (laughs) Things need to change. The interest rate regime needs to change. The role of central banks needs to change. The economic approach needs to change. It's not just Jay Powell's job to do it. Political figures have got to pick up some of the slack, and that's what they're doing, and there's going to be some uncertainty and some, you know, maybe there's going to be like a rocky landing associated with it, but maybe that's what's got to be done. Well, I mean, as we often say, we're with Jay. <laughs> so, I'm 
both fa- I'm very impressed with Jay so far. I am too. I don't have a reason to doubt him. I mean, are you are you horrified by Janet Yellen's remarks? I mean, do you think, oh, how no. dare she? Not, no, neither no, was no, I. No. Neither was I. It was just the oddity of the Biden yeah. administration having a, having its first major kerfuffle. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, you know, and, and for what it's worth, you know, Larry Summers has been at the kind of center of this internecine Democratic Party debate over the wisdom of the stimulus. And he has said in response to the Biden administration's own reaction to the potential inflationary effects that he's even more worried about inflation after hearing that than he was before. So what we're saying is he's not going to replace Jay as the chairman of the Fed. I do not think so. I don't think so. Who do you think, who would? Do you have anyone who do you think would be a likely or a particularly suitable Fed chair if not Jay Powell? Uh, No. I hate to spring this question on you, but. I don't think that they would dare replace Jay Powell. I think the markets have voted on Jay Powell. They're confident in his leadership. So I don't think there's any chance that he won't be uh, reappointed. I just think Mr. Bernstein, you know, walked over his line. As long as the Biden administration's treasury officials and economic officials and, and the Federal Reserve itself are, you know, seeking unusual or unconventional venues to deliver <laughs> policy right. statements, right. maybe they'd like to come on the News Items podcast. That's true. I mean, if they're going to do Politico and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, The Atlantic, the least yeah. they can do is our podcast. That's a good point. Swing on by News Items, That's all right? That's a good point. I like that. All right. On we go to the credits. Before we get to the credits, I just want to remind our listeners that for a deeper dive on all of the topics that we've covered today, they should subscribe to the News Items newsletter that is released before the crack of dawn each day. Google News Items, Substack, John Ellis, and go for the premium subscription. And for a global market of things, there is only one website to go to, and that's investableuniverse.com. Rebecca is the founder, proprietor, editor, and general wizard. Visit it often. <laughs> news items, moving on then, <laughs> news items, is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Simran Singh, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with more of the news. See you then. <laughs>